Well, good morning, church. How are we doing today? For those of you who don't know who I am, uh, my name is Jeremy. I serve as the campus pastor out in Shabana at our Indian Creek campus, uh, as well as the student ministry pastor with our middle schoolers here at Sugar Grove. So great to be with you this morning. Great to be joining you uh, here at the Sugar Grove campus. And for those of you joining us online, uh, good to be with you as well. I invite you this morning to open your Bibles with me to John chapter 17, if you've not already done so. We are going to be spending some time looking at the final words of Jesus' prayer, this high priestly prayer that we've been looking at uh, the past couple of weeks. Uh, The last two weeks, we've seen some pretty wonderful things that Jesus has prayed for uh, as he's prayed for his own glory to glorify the Father, as he's prayed for his own disciples uh, that we talked about last week. And today, as we kind of conclude this section, conclude looking at this prayer, we're going to see Jesus shift his focus in this prayer, not just for uh, the guys who are with him then and there, but he's going to pray for all those who would follow him, all of his disciples uh, for all, all time, as we see according to verse 20. In a three and a half minute prayer that I did time it this week to see exactly how long Jesus prayed, in about a three and a half minute prayer, Jesus prayed six times something to the effect of the unity or oneness of his disciples. That's exactly what he prays for uh, right here in uh, verse 20 and 21, as he considers all those who would believe. The 11 guys that he had with them then, those who would believe on account of their word, and so on down the line, even to us today, his prayer is that we would be one. Six times, three and a half minutes. It's a rather important thing. As Jesus is looking at uh, leaving his disciples behind, recognizing he is leaving even us as his followers in what we could call a hostile environment, uh, the importance of being one together is so critical. But we have to understand what Jesus is talking about when he says that he wants us to be one. And sometimes uh, we might think of things like I have flashbacks to when I was a kid uh, with my two younger brothers. And my mom would say, guys, can you just get along? Like, be nice to each other. And that's one way to manage a 16-hour car ride. We can just be nice. I think Jesus has something more in mind. He doesn't just want us to be one in the sense that we can show up on a Sunday or whenever we find ourselves gathering and interact with a couple people without absolutely losing our cool and fighting. I think he has a greater oneness, a greater unity in mind. As you look throughout the Scriptures, you don't see that this unity amongst believers, this unity amongst us today as the church is defined by our personalities, right? Sometimes that's what is easy for us to go to. You know the kind of personalities that tend to rub you the wrong way and it's just easy to avoid those kind of people and surround yourself with people that are easy to get along with. That's not what Jesus is talking about. He's not talking about our preferences, that uh, we just go to places and are a part of things that uh, are structured and happen the way that we prefer them to happen. He's not talking about our philosophies, the, the ideas that we have on how ministry is supposed to look or, or what is a church service really supposed to be like. He's talking about a unity that's altogether deeper than each of these things. When Jesus talks about being one, he has a deep-seated familial unity in mind. Now, in our house, we have a two-year-old boy who loves dinosaurs. Anybody else had something like that or living in that world right now? No. Okay. All right. So uh, we do. (laughs) And so a couple Saturdays ago, I found myself sitting on the couch with Pete, and we were watching that old 2000 movie with the CGI dinosaurs called Dinosaur. Remember that? 
if you don't, you'll have to go check it out. Um, and in this movie, there's this scene where uh, this whole herd of dinosaurs is traveling to a new home because where they called home got destroyed by a meteor. And so you have all these different kinds of dinosaurs traveling together. And as they're getting so close to where they expect to be headed, they find themselves in this canyon surrounded by rock walls all around them. And that's when they have this thing happen that a Carnotaurus comes up behind them. Now, if you're not sure what a Carnotaurus is, think T-Rex. Okay, so they're starting to freak out, these dinosaurs, because they don't want to be lunch. And so their uh, more antagonistic leader... Uh, calls out to the whole herd and says, run, run, everybody run, just tuck tail and, and get going. He lives on this mindset of the survival of the fittest, that just don't be the slowest one. And, you know, we joke about that today. If you're going to go hiking and, you know, you come across a bear, you don't need to outrun the bear, you just need to outrun whoever's with you. And that's not the idea that their other leader had. This up-and-coming protagonist leader in this movie is like, guys, don't, don't run. He'll pick us off. We'll all be lunch. No, stand together. And everyone's like, stand against a T-Rex. What? Nobody does that. So he goes, and he gets like right up in this thing's grill, starts roaring at him, and next thing you know, another dinosaur, and another dinosaur, and another. And you, now you have this, this whole herd of dinosaurs. You've got uh, iguanodons, triceratops, brachiosauruses, all these different types of dinosaurs. And I know right now you're thinking, how did he just say those names so fast without tripping over himself? I don't know. But here they are, different dinosaurs, all of them standing together, and together they pushed back. And they all survived. It's a silly kids movie. But it gives a little bit of a picture. This unity that Jesus is talking about, this unity that we ought to have as believers is not just a unity of seek out for your own interests. Live for yourself. Cover your own tail. The unity he's talking about, I think, is captured in what Paul writes in Philippians chapter 2, where he says this. He says, Complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, Being in full accord and of one mind. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. That's pretty tangible. This unity that Jesus speaks about, as we look at verse 21 in our passage, seems to be a very observable and tangible unity. He says, he prays that we would all be one so that the world may believe that the Father sent Jesus into the world. So the world ought to be able to see that we're one. And can you imagine a whole community, a church, a a people, a a group of disciples who lived by what Paul was talking about? Selfless, humble, putting the interests and needs of other people above themselves. If we were all doing that, think of the kind of picture that that would give to the world. The kind of community, that seems attractive. That's different than what the world is preaching. That's different than what you're going to find outside. Because that's a community that's defined by Christ. Paul goes on there and he says, Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. But he emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross." 
So Paul, in effect, says, guys, this unity, this oneness that we have as followers of Jesus Christ, as the church, as his people, is modeled to us in Jesus. We cannot find that unity apart from him. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. And so us being unified, even as a church, is not being unified just in the sense that, hey, we, we're uh, together by association with one another. Our unity runs much deeper than that. Think family unity. Right? With all the differences in your family, your family, you stick together through it all. You want what's best for your siblings and your parents and all those that you love. That's the kind of picture that we have here. To model after Christ. To recognize that this unity, this oneness, is derived from Christ and Christ alone. That is driven by the power of the Spirit. Right before Paul said all that, he said, if there's any participation in the Spirit, if there's any participation in the Spirit, have the same mind. So we walk by faith. We walk by the Spirit. And it's devoted to one another. It's not living for Jeremy anymore. Those of you who are married... Hopefully you found this to be true for yourself, that when you got married, it's not just about you anymore. When you had kids, it's not just about you anymore. Your life is now bound up with somebody else. Your interests, your needs are bound up in that person as well. That now you're concerned about them. What if as his followers, his church, we had that same mind? So that we could come together and be, as Jesus says in verse 23, perfectly one perfectly one. Not dictated by our own desires, our own preferences, but each other. Bound up in Christ. And this unity was such a driving factor of his whole ministry. How many times throughout our study in John's Gospel have we heard Jesus talking about his unity with the Father? We've seen Jesus say things like, I and the Father are one that you may know and understand that the Father is in me and I am in the Father. We've seen him say, for whatever the Father does, that the Son does likewise, through and through. And that's the same unity that we are invited into. And see verse 23, or 22 into verse 23, that they may be one even as we are one. I in them and you in me, that they may become perfectly one. That is a radical community. When we are devoted to each other, committed to each other's well-being and our interests. And it's that unity that Jesus shared with the Father that allowed him as he opened this prayer to say, I have accomplished the work that you've given me to do. It's that uh, unity that allows him, even in our passage in verse 26 today, that he can say, I have made known to them your name. You and I, as his followers, as his disciples, as his church, have been welcomed into that unity that we are in him. And as we are in Him, we are in one another. We are bound up together. It is no longer this individualistic culture that we live in. In the church, as followers of Jesus Christ, we are together. One in each other. With a common interest. Now, we had to lay that foundation. I know we're going to get to our outline. But if we miss this idea of what Jesus is talking about, of this unity and this oneness, we're going to miss the beautiful things that he brings up in this passage. If we define that oneness just as being able to walk in and walk out and be nice to one another, we've missed the beauty of what Jesus calls us to as his followers. So I'm going to look this morning at three things uh, that Jesus reminds us of in this prayer, especially as it relates to the unity within the church. 
The first of those we see come up in verse 20, that Jesus' prayer reminds us that there is one church. One church. I do not ask for these only, speaking of uh, those guys who are with them at that time, but also for those who will believe in me through their word. I want you to, for a second, look around this room. And I mean that. Be the awkward person and look at somebody. Look behind you. Look at all the people who are gathered here today. This is one service, meeting at one location at one time. We are the fulfillment of Jesus' prayer in verse 20. Those who will believe on account of their word. And we are but a small sample. A small sample. So we gather here together today at this service, at this location, as a part of a long lineage of faithful saints who have upheld the same gospel, the same word that they received from Christ and passed on and shared from generation to generation, from person to person, all the way down the line to you and I in this room today, that we would believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. They have upheld that. And so we gather together as part of that community. And we gather together today in Sugar Grove to proclaim and sing the same gospel that was entrusted to a handful of ordinarily extraordinary men a couple thousand years ago. Eleven guys originally over there on the other side of the world, and here we are in Sugar Grove. Same gospel, same hope, same glory to God. And we gather here together today, this morning, having received and been entrusted with that same gospel that we would share it with other people as well. For all those who will come after us. I want you to think, what's the legacy of Village Bible Church? You ever thought about that? What will this church be like a hundred years from now? When every one of us in this room are dead and gone. I pray that this church would go strong. That the gospel would still be proclaimed. That lives would still be changed. Think of the people that are going to be sitting in the very seat that you're in right now. 10, 20, 30 years from now. One church... One church. Wayne Groom defines the church as the community of all true believers for all time. One church, united under one head, which is Christ. This is the kind of stuff, I don't know about you, but it gets my blood pumping a little bit. Because it's so exciting to think that as the church, we are part of something so much bigger than ourselves. So much bigger than one location, so much bigger than one area, so much more complex than seven campuses, so much more glorious than we can put our minds to. Jesus prays in verse 22. He says, the glory that you've given me, I've given to them. And don't brush over that too quickly. Like what a statement for him to say that. And so his prayer reminds us that there's one church and there's one glory. How crazy is that to let it sink in for a moment? The glory you've given me, I have given to them. Wow. And then you start to ask the question, what is that glory? You start to ask the questions like, do I view the church as glorious? Do I view the bride of Christ as wonderful and spectacular? What is it that Jesus has given to us? And so look at that. Let's look at a couple of things, even in this prayer, that Jesus says he has given to his followers. 
In verse 8 and 14, Jesus says, I've given them the Father's word. In verse 2, Jesus says, I've given them eternal life. In verse 23 and 26, he's given us the love of God. In other words, brothers and sisters, the glory of the church as we look at it is not just a product of the church. It's not just the church in and of itself. The glory of the church is not something that the church just produces. The glory of the church fundamentally is the glory that has been bestowed upon the church, given to the church, so that who the church is and what the church does becomes a manifestation of that glory so that the world may believe. There is one glory, and that glory comes from God. And we're reminded of the times where we read in scriptures it is from him and for him and to him. One glory unto his glory be done. The church is seen as glorious in Christ. Why? Think of what uh, we talked about last week. Pastor Tim talked about sanctification. The sanctification of his disciples becoming more like Jesus, less like the world. Reminds us of Ephesians chapter 5. When Paul is writing to husbands, and he's telling husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church. What did Christ do? He says he gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. And so that's how God looks at the church. And so I ask you again, have you thought of the church as glorious? Not glorious because of uh, what we are in and of ourselves. Not glorious because we found a way to get together on a consistent basis. But glorious because Jesus has made us glorious. Glorious because it is the glory of the Father bestowed upon us as his church so that the world may see and believe. To him be the glory forever. And yet, and yet, Jesus is so glorious that we have just tasted of his glory. So glorious that we can't perceive of the extent of just how wonderful and glorious he truly is. That we could read as in John 1 where it says that Jesus has shown us his glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father. That as Colossians says, that he is the image of the invisible God. As Hebrews says, that he is the radiance of the glory of God. The exact imprint of his nature. And yet, we have only seen in part. There is a gloriousness to our Savior that we cannot fathom right now. We cannot wrap our heads around right now. You ever think of uh, Moses with the Lord back in Exodus? Lord, show me your glory. Okay, I'll show you but you can't see my face because no one can see me and live. So I'm going to hide you in a rock. And when I pass by, when my glory passes by, you can see the back end. And what happens? His face lights up. It's crazy. There is a glory to God that we cannot wrap our heads around right now. But one day, one day as you and I enter into heaven, We will see the glory of our Savior on full display. He prays to the Father in verse 24, Father, I desire that they also, whom you have given me, may be with me where I am, to see my glory that you have given me because you loved me before the foundation of the world. And so here and now we stand united as one church 
looking not to our own interests and our own needs. And we also look ahead with anticipation for that one glory that we're going to see in full display when we enter into eternity. And I can't wait for that day. Man, will our jaws drop? How could we describe such a wonderful thing that, that in Revelation we're told there will be no need for sun or light because God himself will be the light. How glorious is our God. The same glory that you have given me, I have given to them. That on that day, when we enter, all things will be made clear. Paul writes in 1 Corinthians, he says, For now we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. Now we know in part, Then we shall know fully, even as we have been fully known. And so now, faith, hope, and love abide, these three. But the greatest of these is love, because brothers and sisters, as the bride of Christ, we have been crowned with the everlasting love of God. That He has loved us, He continues to love us, and He will love us for all eternity with the same love with which He loves His own Son. That ought to rock your world. What a glorious thing that Christ has done on our behalf. And all of this, all of this to one end, to one end, that the world may believe. Through and through, as we look at these closing words of his prayer, we see that Jesus has this mission in mind. His prayer reminds us that not only is there one church, not only is there one glory, but there's one mission. It's the same mission that we've been on, that the church has been on for all time. Notice in verse 20, he's praying for those who will believe. There will be those who will believe. In verse 21, he prays that uh, we would all be one so that the world may believe that you've sent me. In verse 23, he says that he's given us this glory so that the world may know that you sent me and loved them even as you loved me. Verse 26, Jesus says, I've made known to them your name and I will continue to make it known. Guys, one mission. And his prayer is, has a much broader focus than just 2,000 years ago. As Jesus stared the cross in the face, he knew that there was something bigger at stake here. That there was a community of people that he was bringing together as he was lifted up on that cross unto the glory of God. That you and I, as long as it's still called today, are still on that mission. That as we talked about last week, Jesus has sent his disciples into the world just as he was sent. You and I are sent into the world with one mission, to make God known and bring glory unto his name. One church, one glory, one mission. And so we see on a weekend like this, with love, uh, we clap and applaud for a missions garage sale. And we see a whole church, all these people, hundreds of people come together uh, to pull off this garage sale. From start to finish and all the prep and all the hours and everything that goes into that. And I got to be honest with you for a second. I don't think that hundreds of people come together and thousands of people walk through this church just because it's a garage sale. It's because of the mission. It's the why. Why are we doing a garage sale? We applaud that $25,000 were raised for what? The mission. To take this gospel that we have been entrusted with and to proclaim it to the most utter parts of the world. To take this message that has been given to us down through the, the ages, that we would continue it all around the world and here in our own communities. 
that we would have this mission to make God known and bring glory to His name. And so the perseverance of the church, the glory of the church, the unity of the church, these things all testify to the world that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. That the Father sent Him into the world and Jesus has made the Father known to us through His life and His teachings. And He has reconciled us to Him by His death on the cross, His burial, His resurrection, that He has now ascended into the very throne room of God on our behalf. This is the hope. This is the message that we have. And so Jesus' mission, his vision is not just to make as many converts, it's to make disciples. To make disciples, those who will follow and teach and train others to walk as Jesus has commanded them to do. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Teaching them to obey all that I've commanded. When I was in college, uh, one of my professors had us watch uh, for one of our classes this video, which caught us a little off guard at the beginning because uh, the video was about one of the last Japanese men who uh, made a living by making swords. Awesome video. And as we watch this video, this man uh, talks about his passion for sword making. And he talks about his desire that uh, he would pass on uh, the aesthetics and the heart of Japanese culture by making swords. And he goes on, and in the video he says, as part of this goal, that what he wanted to do was to to recreate the, the famous Japanese Kodo sword. But the problem, he said, is there's no instruction manual, there's no step-by-step, there's, there's nothing to tell you how to do it. It's something that's only been passed down from teacher to student to teacher to student. And so he committed the next 40 years of his life to mastering it. You think of all the blood, sweat, and tears, the attention to detail, the perfection in his craftsmanship, the times that he failed over and over and over again, that he would say in the making of that video that it's only in the last five years I've gotten close. And he takes that same passion and applies it to all that he's doing. He says that many traditional craftsmen respond to modern times when handing down his craft, but the essence of the tradition suffers in doing so. And he brings that same mindset to how he teaches and trains who he calls his disciple. The man he's teaching to make swords, just as him. And he says this. He says, I want my disciple to surpass me as a sword maker. It is my duty to build up a disciple better than me. Otherwise, the tradition will wear thin with time. What a beautiful picture. And I start to wonder at times if we replace some words there, if we said, could we say that many traditional disciples respond to modern times when handing down his faith, but the essence of the tradition suffers. I want my disciple to surpass me as a follower of Christ. It is my duty to build up a disciple better than me. Otherwise, discipleship will wear thin with time. I wonder if we brought that same zeal, that same passion, that same commitment to our parenting. 
If we looked at it and said, as a parent, I want to raise up my children to be better disciples than I am. That as we brought that same mindset to our small groups, our Sunday school classes, our student ministry small groups, everything across the board, all that we do about discipleship, training up people to follow Christ. And I want to do it so that the people who are following would be a better follower than I am. So that the discipleship of the, of the church would grow stronger with time. That's the vision. That's the mission. Paul says to his own disciple Timothy in 2 Timothy chapter 2, he says, You then, my child, be strengthened by the grace that is in Christ Jesus and what you have heard from me in the presence of many witnesses entrust to faithful men who will be able to teach others also. And so I ask you today, are you part of this one church, this one glory, Are you living on this one mission? Are you taking what has been entrusted to you and passing it along to someone else, teaching and training them to follow Christ in such a way that perhaps they would follow even closer than you have? As we look at Jesus' prayer and we conclude so many wonderful things, we're reminded today that there's one church, one glory, one mission, to make God known and to bring glory to his name. You and I today are caught up in something far bigger than ourselves. To God be the glory in all things. Amen?